The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Back in the summer, uh, we, we really spent some time, and we've still been talking about it, as, man, we really felt convicted that as a church that we weren't really committed to God's mission. That is like God's outward mission, evangelism, reaching people, seeing people come to know Christ. And we said, man, we've got to do whatever we have to do to reorient our church and reorient our lives around that. And, and, uh, and what we've been doing is we've been really been praying and seeking and trying to figure out. That. I don't think we have a meeting as leaders where the topic of evangelism and mission has not come up and asking like, how do we actually commit ourselves personally as a church to that? And, and part of that has been, we said, all right, if we're gonna really commit to the mission of God, then we can't play it safe as a church. We can't play it safe individually. Like we really have to like push all our chips in and say we are in, we are invested in God's mission. We're gonna go, we're gonna take whatever time and monetary resources that we have and we're gonna commit it to God's mission. We're gonna go all in. We're gonna push all the chips in the middle and we're not gonna play it safe. And uh, our uh, unofficial code name for this is Operation Risk It for the Biscuit. And that is like, hey, we're gonna take whatever God has given us, time, leadership, monetary resources, and we're gonna push it all in the middle and say, God, we're gonna commit and invest in your mission and we're gonna trust that you're gonna take that and you're gonna do what you wanna do with it and we're gonna be excited to see what you do. And so uh, part of that is uh, we're going to, we're calling uh, Day, uh, Dale, sorry, I'm calling Dale uh, into my good friend Dave, my good friend Dale, uh, we're bringing in Dale and we said, all right, Dale, would you come in and would you commit part-time to serve DOXA? You've been serving in voluntarily for so long, would you come in part-time and be our pastor of mission and congregational care to help us align for mission? And he and Keetra have made great sacrifices this summer to realign their whole household, to realign their finances, to realign their time and energy and attention to that end. Uh, not just so that Dale can come in to the office, but so that Dale can invest in you guys and can help us as a church invest and align with God's mission so that we don't miss out what God has for us as a church and what God has for the Grand Strand. We wanna applaud, uh, not because of their greatness, but because of their obedience to Christ. They're setting an example, Dale and Keetra, and their whole household is, on what it means for all of us to invest in the mission. Because you know what? It doesn't just mean that Dale and Keetra and their family are gonna sacrifice for the mission. It means that every single one of us are gonna sacrifice in lots of ways for that. And they, I'm really proud of them and really excited that beginning in January, he's gonna be part-time with us to serve you guys and to serve God's mission on the Grand Strand. The other thing that we're doing that is really exciting is we said, hey, for years we said we're, gonna, we're about church planting, but, and we've helped some church planters, but we haven't actually planted a church ourselves. And we said, hey God, would you bring us somebody so we can plant a church? And if you do that, we'll invest, prayer request really fast, uh, David Duran and Margot Duran, are at uh, Christ United Methodist Church. He, uh, David has been serving as their uh, youth minister for the past three years, but they've been feeling this tug and this call to plant a church. And so uh, they are gonna come on. They've announced it already at, at Christ United. And last week, Christ United play, prayed them and blessed them out as coming over to Doxa to be our, our first church planting resident here. 
They're going to serve a three-year church planning residency. The first two years will be on the ground here. They're going to be serving us. He's going to be helping us and Margo to get them ready so that uh, either two years from now they'll be on the ground or two years from now they'll be back and forth between here and Massachusetts. They're going to plant a church in the south shore of Massachusetts, and I am super excited that we get to invest in that, that you guys get to invest in that. And not only... And not only that, but here's what's happened in that time. Also, uh, Ronnie Colty and uh, Yiping, as you guys know, were with us for a long time, and they moved back to Taiwan. You know what they're doing now in Taiwan? They didn't expect this to happen. They're now in Taipei, helping to plant an Acts 29 church in Taipei. And so they're our first international church planters in Taipei, Taiwan, that are looking for us. In fact, they're looking for us to send some people over there to help them and encourage them. If you have some frequent flyer miles or would like to go over there and encourage them and help them and invest in that, uh, we would love to send a team over there to encourage them and help them in planting a church in Taipei. That's really exciting, isn't it? That's really exciting. Here's what I believe about 2020, guys. I don't want to preach about this because I got a sermon coming up, but here's what, I, here's what I'm really excited about 2020. We're going to go all in as a church and individually say, God, as a church, what would it look like if we at DOXA went all in and say, God, we're committed to your mission, not to our name, not to our empire, not to building a do- name for DOXA or Randy or anybody else. What if we committed to God's kingdom along the Grand Strand and beyond and we leveraged all that we have? to that end. Here, here's what I want, guys. I want to be able to sit around with you guys years from now as old people when somebody else is feeding us mush on a, a porch somewhere, and I want to ha- us to have stories to be able to say, hey, I don't want us to have stories about, hey, do you remember set up and tear down? You remember how fun or hard that was? Uh, do you guys remember uh, how good the coffee was that we had? Do you remember that? Do you remember how we had some weird, like, screw-in advent calendar th- thing on the side? I don't want to have those. You know what stories I want to have? I want to be sitting around with you guys eating mush in our rocking chairs or in our little push cart and, some, and, and looking at each other and saying, do you remember how we leveraged all that we had for God's mission and God's kingdom? And do you remember how God showed up? Do you remember? Do you remember when, when your neighbor, who you thought was so far from God, all of a sudden one day he showed up to church And he responded and he came forward for salvation. Do you remember that? Do you remember how it changed his whole family? Do you remember when he then then invited his neighbor and, and they came and all of a sudden you had a community group? Do you remember that? Of brand new believers and it was a mess and you didn't know how to lead them but God continued to show up day after day and week after week. Do you remember that? Those are the stories that I wanna have. I wanna have the stories that say, hey, do you remember how we were sitting there and and you felt called to go overseas and move to India and help Victor plant churches in Bihar, India. Do you remember that? Do you remember how your child Do you remember how your child came forward and responded to say, "Hey, I feel called to missions." Do you remember how your child came to Christ and went to college and led other people to Christ there? Do you remember how all that happened? That's the stories I want us to have. 50 years from now, we will not care how hard or easy set up and tear down in a YMCA was. And it won't really matter. But lives brought from death to life and from darkness to light will. 
know what God can do with a small group of people? How many people did he have by his side when he died? He had practically nobody by his side when he died. But afterwards, he had a small handful of people. They fit in one room. And what did he do with them? He turned Jerusalem and Israel and the Roman Empire and the world a legacy that we have. Let's not let our legacy be living comfortable, middle-class lives. Let's let our legacy be we put all that we had at the middle of the table and we said, God, I am all in. I don't know how you can use me or use my circumstances. I don't know how you can change me or change my neighbors or my family or my coworkers, but I know that you can and I know that you will. Let's pray. Lord, I'm praying this morning, and not just this morning, but as we go forward as a church, I'm praying that you would turn this YMCA, turn this gym, turn this workout center into a sanctuary of your presence. God, we don't need to hear me say anything wise We don't need pithy sayings from me. We don't need a clever sermon from me. We don't need a band that shakes the earth and wows people with their musical prowess. God, we don't need any of those things. God, what we need is your presence and your word in our midst to awaken our dead hearts, to stir and fan into flames our weak souls. God, we need you. And I have nothing, we have nothing as a church to offer anyone in this room, to offer anyone in this community other than you. So Father, help us repent of relying upon other things, relying upon ourselves. Instead of you and your spirit enlivening your word and bringing Now, God, we gather this morning in the middle of this Christmas season, in the middle of this Advent season, and life is crazy. Life is crazy, and many of us are dealing with heartbreak in this season. God, we need you. We're pleading for you to show up. So, Father, I pray you would enliven your word this morning. God, fill my mouth. Fill all of our hearts so that we may be able to hear you and respond. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, this is the third Sunday of Advent. Uh, Historically, uh, many parts of the church have uh, celebrated this thing called Advent. And what it is, it's it's the four Sundays prior to Christmas. And and, uh, the reason that we do it, the the word Advent means coming or appearing. And it's when we as a church recognize, we take time out of the the year to recognize that Christ came and he is coming again. 
It, it means that we, we take time to, to, to remember that what was it like before Christ came originally? What did his coming mean? And now what is it like now and what does it mean whenever he comes again? Uh, it helps us to, to understand as we do that, like what was it actually like before and then what is it like now after that he came? And, and the reason that we do that is, is not, not just so that we would like have warm, fuzzy feelings and be able to light candles and, and look at each other and wear nice sweaters and drink hot cocoa and feel nice about ourselves and about our lives, but it's to, to really focus on, man, just the gritty details of what, does, what was the world like before Christ came? What is it like now and what is it going to be like after he comes again? See, Advent is when we remember that the king has come and that he will come again to rule and reign with all of his enemies conquered and banished. And traditionally what we've done is uh, each of those four Sundays, uh, we as a, as a church have generally highlighted four key aspects of what it means to live under Christ's rule and reign. And that is uh, hope and peace and love and joy. Hope, peace, love, and joy. And, and, and here's the, the interesting thing about all four of those key elements is that all four of those things are, are the four elements, or four of the elements that every human heart has longed for. Every human being who has ever been born has longed for hope, has longed for peace, has longed for love and has longed for joy. And here's the interesting thing, is that all four of those things, though every human being has longed for all of those things, the interesting thing is that none of those things exist in any lasting way outside of the rule and reign of Jesus. Hope, peace, love, and joy. They're all unique in that they only exist in any lasting way under the rule and reign of Jesus. Hope. Everybody needs hope. There's been studies to show what happens when someone loses hope. Everyone needs hope. And, 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 and here's the, the interesting thing, that the reason that we all need hope is that no matter what you believe about other people's social media feeds, nobody has it all together. Nobody is completely happy and content where they are, no matter how much money they have, no matter how good looking they are, no matter who they're married to or who they're dating or who they're not dating, no matter how many kids they have or where they live, no matter what their social media feed looks like to you, every single person is hoping that life is better, their souls would be fulfilled. Everyone longs for peace. We, we all have a sense that this world is broken, that we want a life of wholeness or peace or, or for everything that's wrong because we know things are wrong, we, everything that's wrong to be made right. We all chase it. We all dream about it. And we, we picture, right, that's what so many of our vacations are. Like, man, if, if I could go sit on a beach and have someone bring me a drink and bring me food and the weather is perfect and the waves are in front of me and if I could just sit there and be in that environment, that I can be at peace. And you know what happens? as soon as you leave that environment, or even when you're in the middle of it, is something stirring in your soul saying, man, this isn't it. This isn't what I was looking for. We all desire love. And, and here's the interesting thing as we're thinking about love this morning is that the, the love and the desire for love is so natural, it's so innate, that we don't even really have to say it to each other, right? 
Like we just know that every single person needs love. There have been studies that show, and this is incredibly fascinating to me, because we know like we need food, right? We need water, we need safety, we need some sort of shelter. That's what every single human being needs. But studies have shown that if a baby does not receive loving care and personal loving touch by the age of of six months that they're going to have psychological issues the rest of their life. Can you imagine that? Like, that baby doesn't remember anything from six months and under. That baby is hardly conscious, right? They're not even, like, they can't articulate any real thoughts or words, but they are so aware of whether they're loved unconditionally and they're being cared for personally or not, that if they don't have that sense of nurture and love, it affects them for the rest of their life. Studies have been shown that people of all different kinds of ages, if you don't feel love and cared for, then your life starts to, starts to shrivel, starts to shrink in and cave in upon itself. We all know the intrinsic need of every single human being is a need for love. And we know that we need love. But here's the interesting thing, that no matter how much we chase love and no matter how much love we get, it's never enough, is it? Have you ever been in a state where you say, man, I am loved enough today. Nobody loved me anymore. Like you may not want people to mess with you, but have you ever felt like I don't want, I, I'm full of love. I don't need anybody to love me anymore. I'm good. Please nobody care for me or touch me or look at me or be concerned about me or do anything for me the rest of my life because I'm good. I am done. Nobody has ever had enough. We always have a, a longing and a craving for more and more and more. Isn't that interesting? And that's hard for us to, I, 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 I admit, it's hard for us to admit a little bit. It's probably hard for us men to admit it, but it's probably hard for all of us as human beings to admit, particularly here in our society, because what we've, what we've kind of turned love into is, so because we sort of divorced ourselves from the idea of God and a creator, then our sense of what love is, is like, is a feeling of nurture and care and safety and security that I have from the people around me that help me to to feel good about myself, it's sort of like, but it's not an end to itself. It's like that's sort of serving me so I feel good about myself. But, and it's hard to admit that I need something from outside, but there's a deeper need and a deeper hunger that we all have for love. The problem is that because we are broken as human beings, we're gonna get to that in a minute, because we're broken as human beings, that the kind of love that we think that we need isn't actually what we need. The kind of love that we long for, or we think that we're longing for, isn't actually what we actually really need. And that's why the love that we pursue, whether it's romantic love, or friendship love, or likes on social media, no matter how much love or strokes you get, it never actually scratches that deepest hunger that you have, because that's not exactly what we need. Let's go back and look at Isaiah 53. And let's look at 700 years before Jesus came. What was it that people thought that they needed? And what was God actually saying he was going to send in Christ? And we're going to see that, how that ties in to our great need for love. Look at Isaiah 53 verse 1. This is the in the middle of what's called a, the servant song in Isaiah, it's where, uh, 
let's, let's back up before you look at Isaiah 53.1. So there's this, there's this concept that the Israelites, God's chosen people had for years and years and years, and that's that, that the world is broken, the world is not right, and here's the answer to the world. God said, I'm going to send the Messiah, which is the king who's going to come to Israel, and he's going to make all that is wrong, he's going to make it right. And Israel was waiting for this king. The, the idea was that this king was going to come in the line of David. And so when they thought about David, the, the great king in Israel's history, David was a poet king, but he was a, a great and mighty warrior. He conquered all of Israel's enemies. He set security and safety and prosperity going in Israel. He, he subdued all their enemies under their feet. And Israel felt, all right, man, we're a real country now. We have a real king. And so they were thinking that God was going to send a Messiah, a king who was going to come, was going to conquer all their enemies and was going to make things right by conquering everything that was wrong outside of them and ruling and reigning in power. And that's what they're waiting for. And it was going to be a king, but now Isaiah comes along, this prophet, and in the middle of this long book, it's kinda, it, can, it can be a little bit complicated to try to get into. It's a great read, though. You should really study it. If you can master one book in the Old Testament, it would be Isaiah. But he, this sort of like new thing comes out in the middle of this song that we're reading right now where he says the king is not going to be a great and mighty war, a warrior who's going to conquer people by war. The great and mighty king that's coming is going to be a suffering servant who's going to conquer your real problem. So let's look at this. Isaiah 53, 1. Just before this, he's been describing how when the servant, the suffering servant, the Messiah comes, that nobody is going to look at him and think that this is the guy. Back in the verse 13 of, of the prior chapter, he says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and it shall be exalted. But many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. He heard from us. Now it's turning into the first person. And to whom has the arm of the Lord, that's the, the picture of the Messiah, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So he's saying, here's the thing. Nobody has believed what we have seen, what we have said about the Messiah who is coming, and this is why. For he, he's talking about Jesus now, the Messiah who's to come. For he grew up before him, that's God, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of a dry ground. So he had a, a slow start. But he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should des desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He says the servant that's coming, the king that is coming, the Messiah who is coming, he's gonna come to you, but he's not gonna come in a mighty way. He's not gonna come with a great army. He's not gonna come in any way that actually impresses you. And isn't that true? For all that we romanticize the story of Christmas, you know, it's like a warm, fuzzy children's story that, that we tell our kids and, you know, Joseph and he was going to divorce her and then he takes her and they travel on this cute little donkey, which you got to, like, that would not be a pleasant journey. If you've ever had a wife who's nine months pregnant and tried to travel with her, just tried to sleep with her 
it is not easy. She's not comfortable and nobody around her in in a close vicinity is going to be comfortable either. And you imagine putting a nine-month-old woman on a donkey and traveling from, to another city in the ancient world, like how pleasant that would be. And then you get there and you're in this, like we picture like a, like a little barn shed at a, outside of a hotel. That's not exactly what it was like. It was more like a, a cave, probably. Uh, a, sh- a, sm- a shelter for animals. They end up in there and like, you know, the baby is born in this cute little straw, which guys, that would be a mess. Again, if you've ever been, if you've ever walked through the birthing process with someone, that is... You're in an antiseptic, clean, awesome, like, hospital with nurses and doctors, and it's antiseptic, and, like, it's still messy in there. You know what I'm saying? Like, when, when Sophia popped out, I was like, that, that's some sort of weird alien. That is really disgusting and gross. That was my first thought. I was like, my, my wife just gave birth to an alien child. Can you imagine that happening around straw and animal feces in a cave? And you're like, oh, man, it was so beautiful and cute. And there are these angels and, you know, the shepherds. And they come and they're calm and they're watching quietly. I mean, shepherds were like, they, they were, shepherds were, were gross. Shepherds were not trustworthy. These would be kind of rough guys. What you should picture is more like a, more like a motorcycle gang showing up to, to, to watch the birth of your child in a, in a cave around, like, animal feces. And we picture all so nice and cool. And, you know, then they, she brings up and he, not a cry did he make. And it was so beautiful, but it was really a mess. And if we don't romanticize the story and look at how Jesus came and the life that he lived, he was just a peasant carpenter for most of his life. He wasn't even respected by the authorities of his own people. He was offered up to death by faith and the Roman authorities. No one cared for him. He was despised and rejected by men. There was nothing to look at Jesus, and there's still nothing to look at Jesus from afar, and you look and you hear that story and say, hey man, that's the guy who came to save the world. That's the guy I wanna follow. That's the guy I wanna give my life to. There's nothing in his outward appearance, even in the cross, when you see the cross and he dies and he's put into a borrowed tomb, there's nothing yet that, in, that inside that, that you watch and say, hey, that's something that I want a part of. That's a stock I want to invest in. That's a king I want to serve. That's a leader I want to follow. He was despised and rejected by his own countrymen then. and He's just been despised and rejected by every single human being alive since then when we see simply the outward appearance of his life and his death. Very little there. And yet, here's what God is saying through Isaiah. He's saying, but the reason I sent the king, the Messiah, your savior, the reason I sent him in all, in that way that we just described, in humility, in a forgotten place, to a, to a poor peasant virgin woman, to a forgotten city, to a forgotten town, to an unimportant father, in a, to be born in a barn, to grow up in the way that he did, and to serve in the way that he did, to minister in the way that he did, and to die the way he did, was, was because I needed to conquer the real problem. See, here's the thing. If God sent a king to conquer all of our external enemies, 
and put down every foe and every enemy around us, you know what would happen? He would, we would still not have peace or hope or love or joy because the problem isn't in our outward circumstances being fixed. The problem is in every single one of our heart and soul. Have you experienced that before? Maybe at some point you've been like, hey, I... Maybe not all of us, but maybe some of you in this room is like, hey, you're at a point where you're like, hey, I have all the money that I need. I'm comfortable. Things are cool. I'm married uh, or I'm not married. Uh, whatever it is that I picture things to be like. I've got kids or I don't got kids. I've got the car. i got the house. i got the career. i got the education. Like, I've got everything I need, and yet still deep within your soul, there's this gnawing saying, this is not enough. There's got to be something more. And isn't that the story of every, in our, in our society that worships celebrities, isn't that the story of every single one of our celebrities? No matter whether they're a sports star or a movie star or a rock star or a billionaire businessman, we see it in every single one of them. They're still clamoring, no matter how much success they achieve, they're still clamoring, conquered all of our external joys, gave all of us millions of dollars, put you in the house that you dream of and the place that you dream of, on that beach that you're dreaming of, had somebody bringing you Mai Tais and I'm not supposed to say that in church or iced tea and whatever bringing you and like everything's good on the outside, inside your soul there would still be a problem. We would never have peace and hope and love and joy because inside of us we would still be broken. And that's why he says in verse four, when he's just talking about how despised he was and how rejected he was, verse four he says, surely, this is the amazing thing that he's saying to the Israelites and us. Surely, that's he, that's the suffering servant, the Messiah, the king who's coming to make all that's right, all that's wrong right, to fix everything that is broken. What does he say? He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. People who looked on thought, man, if anybody who's lived like that and died like that, then God must be smiting them. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. See, when the Israelites would have heard that Isaiah prophesied that about the Messiah who's to come, their ears would have perked up and they would have known, they would have pictured something. Because see, since the beginning of the Jewish religion, God said, you guys are going to sin, and here's what you have to do whenever you sin. You have to, you have to commit this sacrifice. You have to get a lamb, or a goat, or a bull, or a pigeon, or a dove. And you have to 
shed blood and you have to sacrifice this animal for the, in, the, in the stead of your sins because your sins are the problem that's separating you from me. It's, the, it's our sin. It's our, our, what our sin is at its base is our rebellion against God. It's our rebellion against God and everything that flows from that, all our hatred towards him, all our running towards him, our hatred towards each other, all our discord with each other, all flows from our rebellion against God. That is sin at its very core. That sin causes all the other sins, and he says, whenever you sin, there has to be a shedding of blood to cover your sin, to, to placate God's wrath against our own rebellion. And so there was this elaborate system of sacrifice. It happened all the time. Daily in the temple, they were sacrificing for the sins of the people. Every, all the time, you would have to bring with your family a, a sheep once a year. You would have to do other sacrifices to atone for your sin. There's all this time, there's this feeling of guilt between you and God, this problem between you and God that you can't fix on your inside. And so you had to get this sacrifice that would cover or placate God for a while. And so when God, so when they hear, the Israelites hear that this, that all of a sudden this Messiah, this king is gonna come, and then what is he says he's gonna do? It says he's going to bear your griefs and carry your sorrows. He is gonna be pierced for our transgressions. That's our sins, that he's gonna be crushed for our iniquities. That's another way of saying sin, that upon him was the chastisement or the discipline or the punishment that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him. We're like sheep who have run away. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Once a year there would be this great sacrifice and the high priest would place his hand on the head of the sacrifice as it was killed and it was a picture of Israel's guilt being placed upon this animal to keep God's anger away for one more year. And the picture that is here is that the king is going to come and he's going to bear our sins and our sorrows and our griefs for our sake. That our iniquities and our sin will be placed upon him. The king would come not to conquer through war, but to conquer through sacrifice. See, here's where love comes in. Love comes in, and that the baby who was born Jesus was the Son of God who willingly came as a sacrifice for you and me. In fact, the sins of the whole world. That manger that you have in the middle of your nativity scene, if you have yours up, by the way, we don't have ours up. We just got our Christmas tree decorated on Friday night. It was three-quarter decorated ever since Thanksgiving. And we've been so busy, we literally did not have a night to finish it until Friday night. Our house is the most grinchiest, scroogiest house from the outside. I don't, we might have a wreath up. I don't, I don't really know. If we do, that's all that we have. It has been crazy around our house. But that, it wasn't a cute place to lay a baby. It was an altar that the Son of God placed himself in. 
He came to sacrifice for your sin. And here's where the beauty comes in. Look at the next verse. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Listen to this. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is love. This is love. Love is not someone giving you the strokes that you think that you need, someone worshiping you and giving you the time and attention that you need. You know what love is? Love is being fully known and yet loved, not just in spite of it, but loved through it. I read this article this week, a short article about this uh, artist uh, named Allison who was born without arms. Can you imagine the kind of life that she lived? She has stories where she remembers growing up in England, being, living in an orphanage, and the, the sister, the nun who was in charge, telling other people who were holding the babies, put them down, they don't need a hug. She remembers on the weekends, wealthy donors coming to the orphanage and watching, looking in through windows, watching the kids in the room as if they were on display. She grew up without affection. She remembers a story of when they were taken as, a, as an orphanage to an outing at the beach. And when they, because these, all these kids were born with disabilities, when they, when they took them to the beach, then all of a sudden the whole beach cleared and everybody left. Nobody wanted to see them. Nobody wanted to be around them. They were despised. They were broken. They were subhuman. And she said that she realized that every human being has four basic needs that they have. They have the need to be loved, the need to love, the need to be accepted, and the need to be respected. The need to love, to be loved, to be accepted, and to be respected. That's love. Love is when somebody fully knows all of your mess, all of your junk. You're not having to hide it and put your best face forward, but they know every single thing that you have done, every bad thought, everything that you've said about them and to them behind their back. They know everything that you've said, everything that you've done, and yet they still love you through it. And friend, love is when, it's, when Jesus Christ would call you his friend whenever you were his enemy. Love is whenever he would know everything that you have done everything that you have said, and he would say before eternity began, I'm going to come as a baby. I'm going to, be, I'm going to incarnate, incarnate myself as a human being and in, and in some way that we can't understand, actually change the nature of the second person of Godhead and be born on earth and grow up as a child into a man in order that I may live a perfect life and die a substitutionary sacrificial death for you knowing everything that you have done, everything that you will do, knowing it all. He said, lay upon me the iniquity of all of them and I will. This is love, to be known fully and to be accepted fully by God through Jesus. Dale already read this passage this morning, but 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So here's how God showed us his love. 
that God sent his only son into the world. He appeared, he advented, he came so that we might live through him. This is love, that you and I would live through the sacrifice, the payment of Jesus Christ on our behalf. This is love. Christmas is not about this warm, fuzzy feelings and happy family gatherings and hot cocoa when everything goes well, because you know what? That rarely happens. Don't believe anybody's social media feed. Here is love. Here's what Christmas means. Christmas is the coming of love, and here's what love means. It is God fully knows you and knew you, and he came as Jesus Christ to pay for you, to bring you back to him that you might live and not die. He came like a lamb to the sacrifice. It says, he, says he, he came quietly. He, he, held his, he held his tongue. He didn't say anything. He didn't protest. That's love. Love is God knowing everything about you and about me. And him coming. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is love. And it's only in us being loved by God and that kind of love known fully yet sacrificing for us to draw us to himself. It's only in us being loved like that that we have any hope of loving other people. We love God because he first loved us, and we love each other because we were greatly loved by God. 